Hi there, and welcome to episode five of the Hippodrome Silent Film Festival podcast. In today's Hipcast episode, we're travelling backwards in time, not quite to the silent era, but instead to the more recent past of 2022. As part of our Hipfest at Home programme that year, we organised a live event, Mark Kermode in conversation with Neil Brand and Mike Hammond. Mark and Mike are both members of the Skiffle and Blues band, the Dodge Brothers, and Neil joins the band lineup whenever they turn their skills to accompanying silent films. Live musical accompaniment is an integral part of the Hipfest experience, whether that be a solo pianist, a collaboration between artists working in different disciplines, or a barnstorming mashup of blues, rockabilly, and skiffle with washboards and banjos. It's a real privilege to learn about the musicians' process, and we're always glad of opportunities to hear directly from these remarkable people who bring out the best in the films we show. The event's original audience Q&A is included so that you can enjoy the questions and the insights they provoke. We thought the conversation with the Dodges was really interesting and well worth sharing again in this intimate podcast format. We'll get the chance in a moment to listen in to what is a fascinating and often amusing conversation between friends and collaborators. It's a, it's a treat. By the way, I hope, like me, you enjoy the intro-outro music we've chosen for our podcast. The most keen-eared amongst you may have recognised that those few bars are from the Dodge Brothers and Neil's accompaniment for City Girl, recorded at their rehearsal for the Hipfest premiere in March 2022. Now, hold on to your hats. Here come the Dodgers. The Dodge Brothers, alongside honorary Dodge, Neil Brand, have played at Hitfest on four occasions. And on four occasions, the cinema has just been overcome by barnstorming, toe-tapping exhilaration. And these guys really put their skiffle into silent film and the jug band blues into bonus. And in 2020, we were all absolutely scunnered when their Hitfest performance of City Girl was cancelled just as the lockdown came into force. But thankfully now we can all look forward to their triumphant return for the Scottish premiere of City Girl next weekend. And it gives me really very great pleasure to bring this bonus event to the programme when we have a chance to hear directly from some of the Dodges talking about their respective approaches to creating music for silent film and their unique take on this silent era masterpiece, City Girl. So now I'd like to invite our special guests to turn on their cameras uh, so that I can introduce you all. Mark Kermode, the UK's leading film critic and host of his own podcast, Kermode on Film, as well as co-host of Kermode and Mayo's Film Review on BBC Radio 5 Live and umpteen other TV, radio and live venue shows. Um, and with the Dodges, Mark performs bass, harmonica and vocals. I think that covers all of them. Um, Mike Hammond, or he, as it says on his box there, but to give him his Sunday name, Dr. Mike Hammond, Emeritus Fellow in Film History at the University of Southampton and lead composer for the Dodges, performing guitars, plural guitars, lead vocals and banjo. 
And finally, in our lineup, we have Neil Brand, composer, broadcaster, playwright, TV presenter, described by Mark himself as arguably the country's greatest silent movie score composer. And you can discuss afterwards why it's arguably and not definitively, but I'll leave that to you. Um, <laughs> Actually, we... arg arguably cost me enough as it was. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think of of Neil as the maestro, Neil Brand, genuinely. And with the Dodgers, he's the piano player. So I'm going to switch off my own camera now and I'll see you guys when the time's up. I want to start by saying I have absolutely no idea why the word arguably <laughs> slipped into that <laughs> sentence, Neil. I, I'm, oh. I'm just I'm trying to think of the construction that made it happen. But uh, so definitely... Up. Definitely the country's, if yeah. not the world's greatest uh, silent cinema composer, performer, um, you know, musician, bon vivant, acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the figures checking up here now. This is so sweet of you. Listen, let, honestly, just going up. Let me start by asking you, Neil, to just say something about how you and the Dodges ended up. Uh, accompanying silent film because we have a version of this story but you are the one who initiated it so how did this happen uh, i i sort of am except that also mike is mike is a film professor as, as as alison said you know in his spare time when he's not gigging with the dodges <laughs> and mike and i used to meet regularly at film festivals particularly in italy and he was always very uh, he was always brilliant with the music anyway, I knew that, and also hugely enthusiastic about the Dodges and about what you guys did. And he was saying, look, we really want to play together. You know, is there something we can play on? And I very much wanted to do that. And it was a case of finding a film that had that Americana feel that you guys have just got nailed, which is not only that blues skiffle feel of balladry but also that wonderful fast moving chunky feel of stuff really driving forward and the number of silent films that that suits is larger than you'd think um and from that as i remember we first of all tried a western we tried a william s hart western and the film itself wasn't that great and i'm very happy to leave you to put in some detail on that mark well I mean, <laughs> let me just say quickly so that film was that film was white oak and it was the first film we had ever played together i do remember you saying at one point if i never play white oak again that'll be fine <laughs> with me but the thing the thing about white oak that's so confusing is that um it changes on a dime in terms of what the tone, so there'll be a funny bit and then an actiony bit and then a funny bit and then a sad bit and then if and when you're playing along to the movie, you know you're doing, you know train rhythm and then suddenly something completely non-trainy is happening. Also, I've seen White Oak three or four times. I still don't know the order in which the participants do or don't die. I mean, characters <laughs> appear to get shot and come back. So it's very hard yeah. to play along to. And also, I think it doesn't have the emotional engagement of some of the films that we've done since then, like Beggars of Life um, and like City Girl, particularly, which have clear 
emotional through lines. And I think we've taken a journey there because Beggars of Life showed us that we could grab the emotion out of films and really make them sing. And City Girl is the next stage on in a way because where Beggars of Life has trains, has crime, has a kind of sense of, of a big forward-pushing plot, City Girl is a, a truly great romantic mood piece with very dark edges to it. But I think we couldn't have gone on to City Girl unless we kind of proved ourselves with Beggars of Life. Mike, do you want to say something about, well, set, set the context for City Girl, describe the film for us, what is it and why is it so appropriate? Well, um, well, City Girl is, it's very late. As a matter of fact, it comes after, really after sound is really beginning to take, take hold. And um, it's made by F.W. Murnau, who was brought by Fox, William Fox, over in, um, to make Sunrise, uh, to make a, an art film. And uh, Sunrise was the first, he makes Sunrise, and it was the talk of the town in Hollywood in 1928, I believe. And um, everybody knew this German director was over there making this, this art piece. And then that was the first year of the uh, Academy Awards, and it won Best Artistic Film. Um, and Murnau has this, and he's just got this beautiful elegance in the way that he he shoots things. And I, I, I was gonna. I think one of the things, if I can go back to White Oak for a minute. Yeah. Um, White Oak is exactly as you said. It's very, very. It, the changes are are geographical. Actually, at one point we're in we're on the Mississippi River, and the next point we're way out west. You know, which is, and 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 and. You know, scenery it really means something when you're writing the music, when you when you're putting music together and trying to get the feel of the film, and um, you know, big western you know landscapes are great. As Neil said, trains they suit us right down to the ground. And um, but the riverboat scene where he's swimming up the river, I wasn't quite sure. We weren't quite sure what to do with that. But Murnau, I mean, well, and what's interesting is that move to. Um, uh, Beggars of Life uh, by William Wellman, which is absolutely, you know, pristine in terms of where it takes place. It's, you know, it's just rock solid, but drives like a train again <laughs> through the narrative in a, in a, in a wonderful way. And it's, it, there's a touching romance there. But once, but with City Girl, there's an elegance to this romance. Uh, and, um, and the scenes of... Uh, um, the the city girl meets a country boy and go they she goes back to the city back to the farm with him, and those scenes of the farm are really quite remarkable because they're big, you know wheat fields. It, it's probably somewhere in Kansas or um, or Nebraska, but it's it's just uh, it it's really elegaic and very. Um, I guess Murnau kind of understood that one of the things that made American films stand out was this, you know, this kind of this, uh, these identifiable landscapes. And he really makes use of that. Plus, as Neil said, the darkness in the film, you know, comes really from, it comes really from two areas. One is that the father doesn't like her. He thinks she's a city girl and that's, and that's pretty dark. And then there's the field hands who kind of, 
field uh, field hands here and they're rough and they're rough and ready and they're not you know kind of yokel kind of hokum guys they're actually quite dangerous you know in a kind of straw dogs way yeah yeah <laughs> and um so there's a lot of subtlety in in in, in city girl and um, i mean i think it's probably pointed out in in, in the brochure that that uh, um terence malick you know, really rapes this film, and 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 his Days of Heaven is a de- direct reference to City Girls. So this this film has had a, a real impact on on film uh, history and film aesthetics, and it, it's it is a cinematic tour de force. And sadly, it was his second to last film. I think he made a documentary after that, but that's a real challenge and a, a lot of fun. So with uh, to do the music. Uh, too and um, I know that I was I was introduced as having composed a film. That's a, <laughs> that's kind of a um, what we do is we we put themes together and then we play like like they would have played in the, in, um, in in that period. Most uh, cinemas in the twenties had um, it, certainly in smaller towns had had four or five musicians playing and they're playing to 30 films a week. So there's, they're not really playing to scores. Uh, they're playing together. And sometimes they play to the audience and sometimes they play to the film. And it just depends on where you are and what you got. And so we try to work it in that way. And um, so by putting themes together, which are in, in certainly in this case, inspired both by the romance and by the, the city scenes and by the, the elegaic uh, uh, landscapes, those themes, then we play with them. And, and when the film, when they come up, we've, and we've learned, thanks to Neil, um, how to do that. I think the first, first time we did it with White Oak, um, I wasn't sure we were, I, thought, I was pretty sure we were gonna die. <laughs> and, 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 and as a matter of fact, that first, the score sheet that I wrote out, it's not music, it's just charts. And um, yeah. uh, in there, there's a lot of Neil takes it from here. Which go to Neil. I think. I think it is yeah, worth pointing out that because obviously when we when we play, we do have you know we've got music stands. The music stands have folders, and people say what's on the folders, and literally what's on the folders is the intertitles so that we know where we are in the film. So there is all the intertitles that appear on screen are written down. And then between that, there will be certain song cues that we know, certain themes, and they will be chosen in advance. And usually we'll play them in, I think, the same key. But the key to all of this, and I'm going to ask Neil to kind of explain how this works, is we're really following each other, following Neil. So when Neil is sitting at the piano playing along to a silent film, he's looking at the screen and he may have some themes, you know, in his head, but he's playing and reacting to, to what he's seeing. And when we're doing it, we are kind of keeping an eye on where Neil is going and we are trying to follow him. And I think that the best performances that we do are the ones when we actually stay off the sheets. We, we come away from the sheets and quite often it's happened that there'll be, you know, there'll be 10, 15 minutes of filming, which we haven't referred to them at all. Neil, do you want to say something about how this 
process works because we've done it, you know, 20, 30 times now, and I'm still not entirely mm. sure how mm. we follow you. It's, it's really useful to have that script, as it were, that Mike, that Mike prepares, where we know there are certain points in the film where we're going to hit a new number or a song or a new idea or whatever. Because what tends to happen is that we'll play a part of the film. We'll then come off the end of that song, and I'll normally probably repeat the chord sequence of that again so that we're all still in the same place. Then maybe I'll suggest the beginnings of something that's got a feel maybe of a 16-bar blues or a, a style of a sort. It's, it, it all changes when we're in a really suspenseful scene, for instance, because then what I may do is go down to a bottom note and just do bum, 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 bum. And we've got great at that as well. Because as soon as that starts, Ali normally comes straight in with a bang behind there. Mike comes in with something else as well. We all suddenly go to suspense land. And we then have a kind of look around with what we can add to those moments. And from that too comes all of our individual input. That's where, Mark, that's where you will start to move as well. And I'll go, oh, he's there. We're going there. Great. I'll go there as well. Mike will come up with something. Ali will come up. Al will come. Well, maybe there's something that, that Al can bring in at that point. And we all kind of shuffle around each other, looking to where we're going to go next. I think we're all pretty hooked on the film as well, because there's, it's moving on. And maybe we're out of suspense land. And if we are out of suspense land, for instance, at its most dramatic, the point in uh, Beggars of Life, where we've had that beautiful love scene in the haystack. And then all of a sudden, a farmer's pitchfork comes through the straw and starts digging it out the following morning. That's where I, I just basically do the musical equivalent of taking all my clothes off and standing in the middle of the stage, which is to sort of go, <laughs> doom, ba, ba, da, da, da. and everybody's like, all oh, right, we're doing that, are we? Doom, ba, ba, da, da, da. And we get that thing in there. But in general, we're a lot more subtle than that. And I think that's what blows people away, is that while all that thinking is going on in all our heads, and we're slowly, slowly coming up to the next absolute change that we know is going to be there, and either Mike will take away, or Ali will take it away, or you'll take it away, Mark. It's, it's so, it feels like we've planned it all. But what we're good at is making it sound like that. And that's due to hours and hours and hours of wonderful performance together. It's the stuff I know you guys have missed it. I've missed it so much yeah. because it's a mind meld. It's this extraordinary ability to kind of listen and go, yeah, we're we going here now. And that is, is just a beautiful thing. Mike, do you want to jump in there and say something about that mind meld experience? Yeah, because I, I mean, I think what you said, Mark, about it, it's best when we're not coming off the script, you know, it's best when we're not looking at the charts. Um, we're, we're trying to hit some, there are some things we want to hit when we get, when we get as, as Neil said, there are certain points in the films that if you can hit that one thing just right, it will, it's, so you want to do that. But um, we just kind of, you know, it, Neil, as Neil has said it, you know, it's a, at first, when we first started doing it, Neil led the way 
Um, and then uh, as we got more confident, you know, we feel, you know, that we, one or two of us can jump in and, and we know where we're going and, and, we're, and putting it one way. I mean, the great, what Neil's really good at is um, taking a theme and then putting it in the minor key, for example, or, or just stretching it enough and that and that pulls us along and one of the one of the things that kind of works with the mind melting is that is that we know when not to play too so we you know there's you know there's you know certain times when you know before I said it was like Neil take it away <laughs> but you know there's plenty of times when Neil will nod to one of us and go yeah, okay now you go you go mm. and um the other thing that I thought was really liberating for us was um, Neil said to me quite early on, he says, you know, it's okay to sing if you want. You know, you can sing in this, you know, cause we had, you always kind of thought, well, early film that are silent films there, there's not a lot of singing goes on, but, but actually it does work. And that, that I, I hadn't, I didn't believe that until we did it. And then it does actually at certain moments it comes in if you if if you do that it it works and then there's a couple of times where we're doing you know in, in uh, um, uh, what's, what's the W S Hart film the other one that's good I've, I've forgotten it uh, Hell's 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 Hinges well you know, we play an old gospel song in the middle of that called Oh Death <laughs> and, and it's a really you know it's a it's a it's a tough scene it's a he's burning the house down and um, or the whole city. Our whole town, rather, and um, and we start singing, and that you know that kind of works, and um, so you know Neil has guided us all along, and also let us play to our strengths. There's a there's some questions coming into the uh, chat room. This first one is from Mark Tipping, who is a you know a, an acquaintance of the Van Hi Mark. Hey, he says, Mark. "Can I?" He says, "Hi, friends. Can I ask you what your top three criteria?" For selecting a film to perform live with, and I, I'm I'm going to begin this. I can't do the top oh. three, but I can begin this by saying something that, that that Neil said a little bit earlier on, is that we we're very good at trains, and and a, a, you know a train is a kind of real it's a corner pocket thing, and I've just been thinking a lot recently about why it is that there are so many trains in early cinema. You know, right back to you know, a train coming into the station at the Ciotat, one of the very first things anyone does when they get a moving camera is they stick it on a on a railway station and go, look, it's a train coming in. And I think that one of the things that we try and think of is what it what can we play our music to? I mean, obviously, we've done some things like The Ghost That Never Returns, which is a really, really strange, experimental you know, and often quite incoherent film, but we still managed to kind of twist it around there. But okay, so one criterion for me is if it's got a train in it, that's, you know, that's a corner pocket. Okay, we can do trains. Okay, so Neil and Mike, one criteria for each of you for, for you know, how we would choose a film. Mike, what do you reckon? Well, I, I think it, it has to have a, um, an emotional center that, um, that we can key in on. So, you know, if it's, so we can move away from, you know, we, we've got someplace to go uh, with, the, with the train. That's really important. And we do need a train in all, most of the films, I'm pretty sure. I don't think we've ever played a film that didn't have a train in it. But um, I think also uh, that emotional center can come in a, in, in a different way. It's not just 
you know, boy-girl romance. It's it's also, I mean, in Beggars of Life, there's something quite touching about the the of Wallace Beery character, and um, and the kind of humorous uh, the humor that's in that. So you need those you need those those kind of levels of 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 emotion from laughter to fear to you know sadness uh, all those things are 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 important but you know that has to come after the train and it's worth it's worth pointing out that in terms of beggars of life because of when beggars of life came out it was originally issued with some sound sequences that came on record and in fact the poster for beggars of life says hear wallace berry sing which is a kind of come on on the ground, you know, on, on a par with watch John Major juggle because I mean it's like you know what, <laughs> who would pay good money? And apparently, although we don't have it anymore, the, the, because when that bit happens in the film, we play the song that Wallace Beery should be singing, and apparently on the record it's not him singing anyway. So it's it's like you, the one bit of the film that you're meant to hear Wallace Beery sing, it's not Wallace Beery. <laughs> So I think actually the Dodge brothers are a very good second best. You should think yourself blessed. You don't have to hear Wallace Beery sing. Okay, Neil, so emotional core and and trains. What's your what are you gonna throw in here? I'm gonna throw in landscape. Yeah. I think almost all the films we've gone for are dramas or romances in which landscape either plays a major part or the drama is somehow or other suffused with that landscape. Um, it's what got us out of jail with Ghost That Never Returns, which although it was a Soviet film set in Georgia, the way we played it turned it into a prison picture set in Arkansas or in, sorry, in, in um, Arizona. Yeah. But it works because it, and yeah, even the, the, all the Georgian oil guys are dressed in what appears to be cowboy stuff with plaid shirts and hats and the rest of it. So actually that worked. But I think the Americana thing comes more from the landscape. Yeah. And with City Girl, as Mike said, we've got these fantastic sort of cornfields. We've got this sense of rural. And what's interesting is the way we've ended up approaching it is that you have the city in City Girl and you have her disillusionment with the city, which, I, as I remember, we've sort of represented with a lot of, of song, we've, with a yeah. lot of, you know, that we're in her mind really whether in the city when we go to that landscape suddenly it's like all bets are off and in the best way as this so often happens particularly with silent film the landscape becomes the arena in which the really personal drama is going to play out and that is a gift for us that's what makes these things work so if we can go on finding silent films that have that combination trains the intensity, the romance, etc., and the landscape, we can go on putting music to. There's, there's a question from Ali, not Ali from the band, but Alison, um, which relates to what you've just said, which is um, in terms of the way in which, you know, City, City Girl gives you both the city life and the rural life, where do your sympathies lie as to the rural versus the city life, and how do you express this, Mike? Do you? I mean, Neil has kind of just touched on this that when we're trying to, when we are trying to express that disillusionment with urban life, we are doing it through song, right? Yeah, we are. I, well, I think one of the things that 
when we first came to this film, because it was Murnau and because we know Sunrise so well, and of course Sunrise in some ways is an op is an opposite kind of film where where the um, the young rural couple um, are kind of uh, um, about to split apart. He's actually going to murder her because he's fallen in love with a woman. He's, from the city. he's about to murder her, which they get over really fast. They do. He yeah. goes out on a boat. He he's going to murder her, and then he doesn't. And he goes, and then we just oh. move on. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is Murnau is so interested in that those those two places, um, and with City Girl, uh, we do it's a, a kind of frenetic. Um, rhythmic thing for the city which i think kind of works because you can you can then you know she's a waitress and she's kind of i mean we've seen this scene and we still see this scene it's a, it's a classic you know american scene where the the waitress is rushing around and she's just had enough you know the the whole rhythm of the city is just not for her anymore and she she can't make ends meet and and then she meets this really nice guy who's is completely you know kind of befuddled or amazed by the city um, and somewhat kind of intimidated by it. And he meets her and they just, they have this lovely kind of meeting. Um, and then he, you know, wants him, he wants to take her home to his family and his, we all know that feeling. And then, um, and then she, they get to the farm and, and, but you see this, the landscape just explodes on the screen. Yeah, yeah. So you go, you go from this frenetic, you know, quite not dystopic. It isn't dystopic, actually. It's just people are living in the city, but it's not for her. And she's she's sad and and alienated. I think is the right word. And they get to the the country, and it you know it explodes, and it's everything she's wanted in many ways. They run down to the to the to the house from the train uh, through the wheat fields, which is such a great scene. Yeah, I mean, it's a scene that. That um, you know, I, I think uh, yeah, it's just you can see why uh, uh, Malik liked it so much. You know, um, but uh, sorry, I, I was going to say I love the fact that you know that Malik, when he was making Days of Heaven, was inspired by City Girl, and then he ended up making movies which appeared to be inspired by Eternity by Calvin Klein adverts. And you just think, just get back to the thing that you did really well. Yeah, exactly. But, Listen, there's, a, there's, a, there's another question which I want to get in because I, I do know time is tight. This has come from Mel Self. I absolutely loved Ghost That Never Returns. I'm going to read this out because it's, it's praising. And I felt that your music really drew out the parallels with various classic Western elements. Yep, landscape. What other non-US films would your Americana sound help to, to revision? And I mean, it, it is weird because I do think Ghost That Never Returns is an oddity. It is an oddity because, it, as Neil said, we kind of make it feel like it, like it's, like it's a Western, because it sort of is, isn't it? I mean, is, are there are there other examples of movies that we could do that with Neil? You're the great movie chooser. It's a real tough one that, because whatever we come back to, we will be, as it were, sifting through. Americana. Yeah. That's that's how we're going to be approaching it. And to be frank, if you try to Americanize much in the way of French, German, Italian, British output, you're going to be on a hiding to nothing. Yeah. Uh, the 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 
the the Abraham Room, the, the Ghost That Never Returns, was a, an incredibly singular film. I mean, he didn't make another film like that. I no. have not seen another film like that. And if I'm I'm delighted Mel liked it, she knows her stuff. But also that opening prison sequence there, in which you have what appears to be a wall of prison cells and a guy on a revolving turret in front of them with a gun. That is so American. It's somehow or other not Soviet Russian. So it would be finding somebody in much the same way that later directors, people like Kurosawa and so forth, who had taken Hollywood to themselves and then produced it out of their own uh, culture. It would be finding a, a silent equivalent of that, a director who was entirely uh, influenced by Hollywood's take on the world, but then made their own version of it. And I really don't know what that may be. And mm -hmm. actually, I'm probably not the person to ask. I, I've seen a lot, but I have nowhere near seen as much as some people out there. And if, if we were to put out an all points bulletin, folks come up with something non-American yeah. that has the feeling that we bring to these films let us know because I'd love to know what they are. I love playing American material. I'd love to find something else that is out of left field the same way Ghost was. Hmm. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that's worth saying about, about Ghost, and I think this kind of relates to, to what we're trying to do with the, with the Dodge's music, is in any film that we're playing, we're trying to find the through line one of the reasons why Oak is so difficult is because it doesn't have a clear through line. Um, one of the reasons that Beggars and City Girl are so rewarding is that they do. And you can hear that when we get to that scene of them running through the field, you can hear the band, you know, because it's a moment of great joy. One of the things that's interesting about Ghost That Never Returns is that we always struggled a little bit with the narrative and we tried to play themes that made sense of the narrative and then we discovered sometime later that there are several reels missing that we've been playing an incomplete film but i kind of think that one of the things that music can do i'm not crediting us with this i think what any great film music can do is to make sense of something that may be not incredibly coherent in and of itself Mike, do you want to say something about that finding through lines through movies with the music? Yeah, I think um, I think it's one of, I mean, this probably Neil's better to answer, answer this question, but I'll have a go. Um, there are certain scenes that just, that are, are that, that um, like, I guess with, um, I mean, by even in Beggars of Life, when they first, when she, she first is relating what's happened to her, right at the very beginning of the film. Um, that's very rhythmic and it, you know, it, it really sets out the whole film. And not just because it doesn't mean that that's what the film's gonna be, but it means that that's where you can go. You can go to other places from there, but it gives you that base. And, and that makes a lot of sense with the narratives because now we know why she's dressed as a girl, I'm sorry, dressed as a boy mm -hmm. and is trying to get away because she's murdered a guy who's been try who's basically trying to, you know, rape her. And, um, and that's pretty tough stuff. And so that makes that romance. You know, she doesn't trust this guy who takes her away from, from that. 
but then all of a sudden they start talking and then and then you have this um you, then you have this that's where that's the emotional center but it had to come from somewhere else and i think actually with ghost who never returns well what's really interesting about that film is it's pretty simple a guy's let out of prison and, and he want, he's going to um, fuel the revolution uh, but are they going to catch him and that's pretty simple you know, is there, are they going to are they going to catch him? Maybe the revolution part is not very simple, but they, are they going to get him? And um, and in that sense, you know, it's uh, the thing that it's it's his misery in the prison that sparks all that. And I think again, like we said with uh, City Girl, it's her alienation in the city that really that really you you you're coming from that, and so you can go to that gives you a basis from which to to move. And Neil, do you does there have to be a a couple of defining themes for it? Because I'm very conscious that whichever whichever films we play, I mean, like you know, in the case of uh, Beggars of Life, it's you know, it's Poor Boy, and you know, there are there are certain key things that we play. And actually, with every film that we've played, there are a couple of key tunes. Does there have to be a kind of unifying theme of music all the way through, or can the music just go anywhere? No, I think the that's what is so important about what mike does initially there needs to be two or three songs that will represent different themes in the film but the biggest one the most important always is the one we relate to most is character and it's interesting that the characters in ghost barely change at all <laughs> they start and end pretty much the same in the film they've just done stuff in between times Whereas the journey that certainly the Beggars of Life couple go on is pretty huge, but it's nothing compared to the emotional journey that the main characters in City Girl go on. And there we have a really quite complex, certainly the most complex that we've handled in the past, emotional journey for all of these people. And it is the beauty of the fact that you can establish something really lovely at the top for her disillusion or for his love of her his realization that she represents everything that he loves about the city and that is going to go through an evolution a change which is almost beyond belief i don't want to give anything away yeah. but we get the chance then to ring the changes because each time we're relying we're relaying back do you remember what this was like yeah well look where we are now and as the film goes on that is a fantastically strong narrative subtext to be able to bring out in the music just time for one last question. This is just coming from Brian Saberson. This is a terrific question. Does the audience reaction have any influence on your performance? And I'm going to begin by saying, yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. You want to pick it's... up on this and say how? Um, I'll have a go. Uh, well, if you don't get a tomato on the side of your head, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but actually, it, it really does. You you know that's the difference i mean neil has got much more, more experience than 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 we do but one of the things that it's absolutely clear you know when the audience is with you and it sometimes doesn't have it, it doesn't have to do with hearing hearing something it's you, you can just feel it i mean i think there's certainly there are certain moments when you know that if you're going to get them anywhere it's at this one point and if you hit that and they, you know, they laugh or they gasp or they, you know, and you can feel that. And, and that just really, 
Um, that's what is very different from, uh, I, I would imagine scoring a film that, you know, pretty much like, like they do today. So the live performance of it is so, uh, um, it's, it, there's a kind of a dialogue. Neil, are you reacting to the audience when you're playing? Ever so much. And Mike's got it absolutely nailed. You can hear when an audience is hooked. Quite often it's the silence, it's the pregnant silence that you're hearing. And then when people laugh, or as he says, gasp or whatever, it comes very quick and it goes. And that's when you go, whoa, we've got them. And actually the, the sense that we have when we're really working well is, which is that we're, we're all on this mind meld thing, but there's also something about the audience that actually really makes us feel better. I can feel the audience enjoying something. I think, right, okay, I'm, we're home safe. We're all right. We're doing okay. Let's, let's try this. There's a bit more confidence. So the, the audience reaction is entirely bound up with our confidence and makes all the difference. There's also, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a weird phenomenon. I mean, we've played films in which on the seventh or eighth playing of them, people will laugh or gasp at moments that we'd never we'd never thought of as funny or and and actually we play we do play into that. So, oh, okay, this is this has got a bit of slapstick or this has got a bit of melancholia. There's also, and Mike, you might want to just say something briefly about this because we're very near the end. There is a scene in Beggars of Life which is which is a comic scene that we deliberately don't play as comedic. Yeah. And I think that's one of the times in which we're trying to pull the film another way. Do you want to say something very briefly about that? Yeah, it's a minstrel scene. And uh, it's played by the wonderful George Washington Blue. And he's fabulous. But he, um, and his performance is, uh, uh, is minstrelsy, but we, we, we undercut it. And that actually pulls out a kind of pathos in it because there is, there is a pathos in the scene. He's, he's seeing his friend he's been looking after has died. And so, but it leading up to it. So we're playing it as, as the, he doesn't know that this friend is dead, but, but the music knows that he's dead. So that, so we don't play it as a laugh. We play it as a, as a, as a melodrama. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting as well that what Neil's saying about, you know, you, you feel like you're home safe, even if the audience aren't, making a, a noise where even if it's not laughing or gasping or clapping there is a, there is a weird communal thing and i think you get this in bonus i think you get this in in the best auditoriums you can hear people breathing i mean you can you can hear people holding their breath you can hear people going i mean i've talked before about being a critic and being in a room with critics and you can feel them going with the film or you can feel the film losing them and i tell you when we are playing you can feel the audience going with it. And I'd just like to say, if anybody's coming along to the, to, the, to the gig, we play a lot better when you're going along with it. So like us, you'll get a better show out of it. I think that's, that's, that's really the kind of... Yeah. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? It, it, it is, it's very yeah. much a dialogue. Neil, do you want to say a closing word? Because I'm aware that we have less than two minutes left. Uh, not really, only that I think I speak for all of us really when I say that this is a wonderful return for us after all this time to be able to play a film together in Bones because it is such a warm welcoming space and it's great for us. We will be having such a ball doing this film and it's wonderful to be doing it somewhere that we know and love so well. Yeah, yeah we're really looking forward to that. 
Uh, Alison, I'm going to invite you to uh, to put your camera back on again because uh, I realise that we're exactly out of time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I honestly, there's no danger that everybody is going to like you. I mean, everybody is going to like you. There's no danger that that isn't going to be the case. So thank you so much. So hang around for a moment while we wrap up. Just thank you, Mark and Mike and Neil so much. Um, I just, I was really, really precious and wonderful to hear you all talk so passionately and articulately about and demystifying what you do but at the same time we're just really left so awestruck um by the talent and the intuitiveness that you all show and it's really striking how when you talk about the mind meld and how it's evident how you guys are all so um you know how you're so in tune with each other <laughs> obviously literally and metaphorically speaking so yes fill your boots with the dodgers <laughs> um and our little pitch, if you have if the means and you'd like to support HipFest, all the details for that are on our website too. But for now, goodbye. Thanks again. And thank you, uh, Mark, for showing me the noir setting. I'm now going to do that <laughs> everywhere I go. Okay, thank you and good night, everybody. Okay. Good night, everybody. Listen out for more episodes, like and subscribe wherever you're listening. We would love it if you would rate and review this podcast to help us reach a bigger and broader audience. A final request, HipFest needs help and you might be our missing link. We rely on grants and sponsorship for more than 80% of HitFest costs to bring you great films with live music and much more. Could you or someone you know benefit from a sponsorship slot in this very podcast? If so, then please get in touch by emailing hipfest at folkirk.gov.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. <laughs>